If you're new with us, we're plowing our way through the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And uh, these are these are called the pastoral epistles because they were written to pastors. That's the reason that we call them this. Uh, Paul was in prison. He's writing this letter of 2 Timothy from prison in Rome. And he is writing to Pastor Timothy at Ephesus, who is one of the elders at the church at Ephesus, a delegated elder that Paul had sent there to put things in order and to deal with the church. And so these letters are critical for us. And the reason that uh, we study them here in the first year of our church's ministry has been to set our expectation for what God requires of us, what he uh, designed for us as a local ministry, what he expects of the leadership and what we ought to expect of leadership within the local church. And so I know that I've been blessed, um, a little biased, because uh, these letters are particularly important to me, but I know that you've been blessed as well as we've interacted with all that Paul has given us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about tonight in these letters. We've come through chapter 3 and we're concluding it this evening. We'll finish up chapter 3 and then we'll have a two-week break with baptism next week and then the following week we'll have our our members meeting. And so then we'll come back in three weeks and begin chapter 4, which is is my one of, if not the life passage for me. Uh, Chapter 4 and those first verses just so critical to understanding the task that is set before the under-shepherds of the local church. But we're finishing out chapter 3, and just to rehearse where we've been, David Morris took us through chapter 3 up until verse 14. And just to get you reacclimated, we saw the cause for the difficulty that was described in verse 1. In the last days there will come times of difficulty, and the cause for that was wicked people. In verses 2 through 9, Paul describes the kind of people that are going to make up this era uh, in history, which is the last time. It's the last epoch. It's the final day um, before the Lord returns. And so he describes these wicked people as the cause for difficult times for God's people and for the church in verses 2 through 9. In verse 10, he picks up that thought and he gives the contrast in the faithful believers. And Paul uses his own example, but he describes here the contrast to those wicked people with faithful believers in verses 10 and 11, using himself as a key illustration and speaking to the contrast that exists with those who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verses 12 through 13, we see the consequence of that faithfulness in the, in the believers as the contrast to the wicked people, and the consequence is persecution. So Paul is not at all surprised in And remember that he writes about persecution from Rome, right? Nero has put him in prison. This is the big persecution of Nero when Rome burned. Um, He was being accused of being insane, which he was, um, being mentally completely off kilter. And to hide behind something, uh, Nero chose the Christians as the appropriate target for his accusation. So history well records for us his persecution of believers He would, at times, uh, tar believers, stick them on poles and burn them as candles for his parties in his courtyards. Um, He did atrocious acts against the Christians. And the Christian community understood the consequence of being the contrast in the last day. They got it. And when Paul says this in verse 
12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, His words brought some serious credibility because he was sitting in prison in Rome and it would be the last prison cell he would sit in. Uh, History tells us, the traditional history tells us that Paul never did make it out of that prison. He was taken outside of the city and he was beheaded as a part of the mass persecution of the believers under Nero. That was the consequence that should be expected in verses 12 and 13. The believers will be persecuted and evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. They'll just keep getting worse. And then we wrap up this chapter with the section that we're going to continue our study in this evening. We began this last Sunday evening and we'll pick it back up tonight. And that is the command for you and I, and especially for young Timothy as a pastor within the local church, what was the command that was to guide his life, his priorities, his thoughts? What was it that he was to focus his attention on? in these difficult last days, with wicked people, with evil imposters, with persecution, even for those who are faithful, what was his command given from his mentor, his leader, his discipler, the Apostle Paul? And we found that in verse 14 with a very brief command given to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, here's your command. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. That was the command that was to guide the remainder of Timothy's ministry. And, and we, could, we can empathize with Timothy reading this because surely he was aware that Paul was in a very desperate situation and surely Paul was aware that he was in a very desperate situation. And he says to Timothy, continue on almost as if I'm going to be gone, but you press forward. You hang on to the truth. Don't let it go. Be faithful to what you know to be true and what you have firmly believed, what you've learned and believed. And so that was the command given to Timothy in these last days. And really, this is the command, the charge that we take up. This is what we fall under. We desire for this charge to be stamped across our ministry from the leadership to the body in its many parts, to the ministry of the church as it goes out into the community, into the ministry of the church as it gathers for its worship and instruction. We desire for this to be the charge that, that we follow. We continue in what we've learned and have firmly believed. That is sound doctrine. The whole of what had been passed on through the apostolic word to those who were faithful and believing in Jesus Christ. That instruction, that command that Paul gave was not just an empty command without any advice on how exactly to go about continuing faithful in what he had learned and believed. And you'll remember last week we talked about this, how how critical it is when we're receiving a command to have some sense of, well, what can I do to make sure that I get that command accomplished, that I, I appropriately finish the task that's been given to me? It's exactly what Paul addresses in verses 14 all the way down through the end of this chapter in verse 17 as he gives two safeguards for Timothy as he presses into this continuation of faithfulness. It's as if Paul slaps up two guardrails on the ministry path of Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I want you to stay on this trail. This is the trail of truth. Stay here. And here are two guardrails that will help you as you move forward in your faithfulness. These are guardians 
that will help you along your way. And maybe you remember these. If you were with us last time, maybe you don't. The two safeguards are very simple. Faithfulness, first of all, is guarded by a spiritual heritage. In verse 14, Paul outlines and reminds Timothy of the heritage that he enjoyed. Into verse 15, how from childhood he had been acquainted with the Scriptures, who he had learned the truth from. In verse uh, 14, at the very last phrase, knowing from whom you learned it. You remember the people that Timothy learned the message from? Timothy learned the truth from? Bible trivia. Anybody remember the names of the individuals who are particularly addressed here? One of them is quite obvious. You can get the easy one right out of the, out of the way. What is one spiritual influence that is the heritage of Timothy in the truth? Paul. Okay, good. Paul is the easy one. Uh, that's the simple one. What, what other individuals would, would Paul be drawing Timothy's attention back to um, as he thinks about his spiritual heritage? His mother and grandmother. And do we remember names of those ladies? Eunice and Lois. Very good. Very good. Wow. Glenn, you win your Bible trivia prize for this evening. Write it down. You've got it. And we'll get your Cracker Jack box to you as soon as the service is over. Eunice and Lois. That's right. And that was important to Timothy. Because Timothy was to meditate not just on the truth that he had believed and had learned, but where it came from. Where he had received the word from. And that was his spiritual heritage. His godly mother, his godly grandmother, even the Apostle Paul, and those who had come alongside of young Timothy as he developed in the faith. Those were to be the guards of his way. As he continued in this, they were to cheer him on. They were his cheerleaders who kept him faithful and kept him on his continuing in the ministry of the gospel. There is another one, another safeguard that helped Timothy in this pursuit of continuation in the gospel. And the second one is what we're going to spend our time this evening addressing. That is, faithfulness is guarded, secondly, by a settled bibliology. A settled bibliology. In other words, it's, it is guarded by what we know and believe about the Bible. That's what bibliology means. There's a whole lot of B's and a whole lot of I's. Bibliology is the theology of the Bible. Where does it come from? How did we get it? And that understanding, that information was to be the guard that would help Timothy in his faithfulness. And boy, this could not be more applicable than to our situation here. We've started and we pray that we've started well. And yet our desire from day one has been to continue and to continue, we must understand the, the heritage that is ours with the apostolic message. God in His grace and His providence has brought that message and preserved that message even into our lives. And that is an encouragement to us. There are many who have gone before us. There are many who have died for this message. That stand as our cheerleaders along the way of continuing. But nothing is more critical than this second aspect in our faithfulness in ministry, and that is to continue guarded by our understanding of the Word of God. What is the Bible? and Why do we trust it? Why do we follow it? Why do we teach it and study it together? It is a guard 
for our faithfulness in continuing in the ministry. Let me read these verses for us. They're familiar. I read them this morning if you were here. We've already taken a quick cursory overview look at them, and we'll dig a little deeper this evening and rehearse some of the things that we talked about this morning. I'll read in verse 14 just to set the table. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And if we continue on, you'll notice the outworking of this that we're going to study in just a few weeks. I charge you in the presence of God, And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, or proclaim the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is the natural end to what we're going to talk about this evening. That is the natural implication or application of the truth that we'll see as the guardianship of those who will remain faithful. A settled bibliology. Paul here does not inform Timothy of things that he was unaware of. He reminds him of what has already been established in his life. This was already the testimony of Timothy's bibliology. And yet Paul brings this back to bear on him and says, if these realities are true, they will help you along the path. They will keep you on the path of faithfulness to the gospel. Now, just a couple of notes. Let's look at verse 15. We're just going to walk through these for the next few minutes. And I want to look at these passages, talk about some of the things that we didn't mention this morning, and then we'll be, we'll be finished for this evening. He talks about the sacred writings in verse 15, and he describes them as those which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Um, First of all, the sacred writings is a very unique way of discussing the Bible. It's a unique title that's given to the Bible. And Paul is most obviously with this particular title talking about a particular portion of our scriptures. Anybody know what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the sacred writings? Anybody have a guess at what Paul's referencing when he says that to Timothy? I'm sorry? You'll have to say it loud enough for me to hear you. Or you didn't say anything. <laughs> Anybody want to take a wild stab? Okay, good. That's true. The sacred writings were the manuscripts that were available, and no doubt at this point there were some of those that were still original manuscripts preserved, but the copies were being made. What specific portion of the manuscripts are we dealing with here? Old Testament. Exactly. The Old Testament writing, the sacred writings were the law the prophets, and the wisdom literature, the writings in the Old Testament. And Paul here says to Timothy, be mindful of this, Timothy, the Old Testament scriptures, that which you have had inscripturated for you. It's been preserved in written form. Those are capable of making one wise for salvation. The wisdom that is necessary for one to come to faith in Jesus Christ is encapsulated in our Old Testament Scriptures. Now, no doubt, Paul understood that God was still revealing Himself 
through Scripture. He was still bringing new revelation at this point. In fact, it's interesting to think, depending on the dating of 2 Timothy, it's interesting to think about how much of the New Testament had even been penned at that point. Very little. Very little. And in fact, that which had been penned, there would have been James for sure, which was one of the earliest. But the next earliest book of the New Testament after James, any Bible college students here remember this from your quiz? Um, What's the next oldest book after James, at least as a guess of the dating in our New Testament? Anybody want to take a, a wild go at it? If you went to Master's College? No, it's not 1 Corinthians. Failure. Failure. You are a teacher. I X'd it off. Wrong. No, the next oldest is 1 Thessalonians, which is equally tied to 1 Corinthians because what I'm trying to say is the, Paul was the writer. Um, so he is aware that God is working, God is moving, God is doing revelation work, and yet his emphasis in this section on the sacred writings, Ken said, I've had enough. If that's it, I'm out of here. You X off my sheet, I'm gone. He just doesn't want to be asked any more questions. All right. Here's the message from verse 15. The Old Testament scriptures are capable of making you wise unto salvation. Now let me show you something very fascinating. I mentioned this this morning. I doubt you picked it up. But in James chapter 1, verse 18, which is the earliest chapter of our New Testament. This is the first verse 18 in the New Testament. Okay? And James says this, Of His own will, that is God, Yahweh God's own will, He brought us forth, He birthed us, that's, that's the, the word that's used there, labor, birthing, He birthed us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. By the word of truth. And James is addressing the same reality that God, through his Old Testament scriptures, brought us to the place of wisdom for the sake of salvation. Your Old Testament scripture brings you to the place of understanding your sinfulness. Your Old Testament scriptures present to you the promises of Yahweh God to provide a Savior for the salvation of sinners. The Old Testament, the sacred writings, were capable of and sufficient to bring wisdom for, verse 15 says, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And let me just take one brief moment to say, your Old Testament is all about Christ. You remember those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? You remember those fellows? Poor guys. I'm talking about the ultimate... Uh, uh, video duping. They were walking along just listening and thinking, who in the world is this individual with us? And Jesus Christ, resurrected, was with them. And what was he doing with the men on the road to Emmaus? He says he went and he began at Moses and showed himself in the Old Testament scriptures. He began with Moses. He began with, that is the book of Moses, that's Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first, that is the book of Moses, the first five books. And Jesus begins with Moses, and he shows himself in the Old Testament. As you read your Old Testament, if you're reading the Bible consecutively, and I trust that you are, you're reading from Genesis through, and maybe you have a different technique for doing that, but as you read in your Old Testament, understand that the end of your Old Testament is Jesus Christ. 
He is the culmination of everything you see. It's been such a blessing to read Genesis with you on Sunday mornings. Because constantly I'm reminded as I read Genesis through the week, preparing to read, or as David does, we're constantly reminded that that here's Jacob, or here's Esau, and here are these narrative accounts of stories that are true historical accounts, and yet all of them point to the faithful, promise-keeping Yahweh who did bring Jesus, the Messiah, to bear the sin of His people. Christ is the centerpiece of our Old Testaments. He is the culmination of our Old Testaments. And He is the culmination of the entirety of our Bibles. So Paul says, Understand that if you are to continue, Timothy, it will be because you are faithful and guarded by a settled bibliology. Scripture is capable. It is the means by which God brings wisdom for salvation. And there is no other way. How many of you have ever had the frustration of trying to bring someone to understand and to get it when it comes to the gospel? And you found yourself just seemingly spinning your wheels trying to come up with other ways to explain it. You're trying to get it to them and you're just thinking, I can't get them to understand this. They just don't get it. Well, Scripture is the only means by which the light bulb comes on. That is the sacred writings that make us wise for salvation. Alright? That brings us then to the broader picture found in verse 16. All Scripture, that is any Scripture, all of it, there is no untouched portion here. There is nothing left out. There are no portions of your Bible that are somehow removed from this description, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is such a, uh, a bedrock verse for us and such a Scripture memory verse, and yet it's critical for us to think rightly about this. The original documents of the Bible were breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit superintended through human authors who wrote with real personalities, who wrote about real issues, who narrated real historical accounts, and yet the Spirit moved them along as they wrote in such a way that the finished work, the final document, the completed original writing was inspired. It was the very voice of God on paper. That's what you hold. You hold a translation of the myriads of copies of those inspired original documents. And we are so thankful that God in His, His amazing, miraculous providence has preserved for us His Word even until today. All Scripture is breathed out by God. A couple passages to remind you of. We just read one of them. Psalm 119, verse 89. Read that last week. And then Second Peter 1, 20 to 21, and this is the passage that I quote often without giving you the reference, and that is my failure to you. I always like to show you what I'm saying. Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It's really 19 to 21. Um, fascinating portion of the Bible here. Just in a nutshell, what Peter teaches is that though the prophets um, had visions from heaven, um, though they saw 
even the transfiguration, the three disciples were eyewitnesses, and Peter was one of those eyewitnesses. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration, John 17? And then he says this in verse 19, And, or but, we have something more sure. This is an amazing comment. We have something more sure than our eyewitness account of the transfiguration. And what is more sure than that? The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. They were borne up by none other than the Holy Spirit. That was the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. And that, that finished product was the inspired Scripture, the inspired writing that we have before us. God continued this work even into the New Testament and all that we have through the process of His preservation and recognition of that inspiration is, is found in our 66 books from cover to cover. And at some point, we will have an opportunity to do a study together, whether it will be in Sunday school or in Sunday evenings or maybe even Sunday morning, to do a study of how we got our Bibles and why we should trust them. But for now, it is enough for us to rest in the the factual evidence presented in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. You can trust it, and you must, you must submit to it. Okay? Even the genealogies, even Habakkuk, uh, even Zephaniah, even Leviticus in the middle section, all of those portions are inspired by God. All of those portions are capable and able to make one wise for salvation. And notice what else they are capable of and useful for in verse 16. Not only are they breathed out by God, but they are profitable for ministry. The Word of God is not just to be recognized as from God. It is to be responded to and utilized as a tool that God has given us. It is the very Word of truth. It is the very mechanism that the Spirit uses to change the lives of those that encounter it. Verse 16, the second part says that the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And just quickly, um, these aren't hard to understand. The teaching here would be doctrine. It is the, the information that we receive from the Bible. We profit from that information, correct? Uh, If you're here this evening as a follower of Christ, you profited from the teaching of the Bible to you. I mean, the Bible taught you things. It is profitable for instructing others. It's not only profitable for instruction, but it's also profitable for reproof. And that is rebuking the error of our lives. All of us that are followers of Christ have had the Bible take us to the woodshed and reprove us. Have we not? We've all been there, whether it's in a public setting or whether it's in our private worship, where the Scriptures deal with us. They confront us. The Spirit convicts us. And we are made aware of error in our lives, parts of our lives that do not match our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and as followers of His kingdom. 
But the Bible does not just give us information. It does not just stick us where we're wrong. Notice the next description of what it profits the church. It is for correction. And that's that's a very encouraging word. This is not correction like your mother corrected you about that already. This is correction as in mending. In fact, the word is used of picking someone up who has fallen. And so if the Scriptures come along and say, you've fallen, the Scriptures also are profitable for scooping you up and saying, get back up. Look at Christ. Look at the truth of the Gospel. Look at what the Spirit can do. Get back up. The Spirit not only reproves, but it corrects. It mends us. It establishes us back to the place where we need to be. It picks us up as those who have tripped and fallen in our pursuit of Christ and knowing Christ. This is all about the Bible. What is the Bible? It is the inspired Word of God. It is the breathed out Word. It's God's voice on paper. And it is profitable for our doctrine, for our correction, or for our reproof rather, and for our correction. And finally, it is profitable in the church for training in righteousness. And this is an interesting term as well. The idea here is discipline. Um, The Bible profits us as the disciplinary tool to help us in in our practice of righteousness. The Bible comes along and it helps us in our pursuit of a life that is habitually righteous. We're never free from sin until we're in the presence of Christ, and that's what Scripture reveals to us. And yet the Word of God trains us in this righteousness. And so it is profitable. It is beneficial to us. There's another passage that ought to be jotted in the margin here, and that is Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. If we're going to talk about the Word of God, it's difficult not to deal with Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The author of Hebrews says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is quick, the old King James used, quick as in alive. It is quick and powerful. It is alive and active. And not only is it active and living, but the Word of God is piercing. It is discerning. You ever thought about, I mean, that's one of those memory verses that we just kind of know, right? For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing a soul asunder. goes through all that, all those quick, rattle it off, and yet we don't even think about what the word picture is of the dividing. What the author of Hebrews says is piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow is that the the Word of God goes where nothing else can go. It splices right where nothing else could ever cut. The picture I always think of, the sharpest knife and the best cutting that I could ever imagine, I see when I eat what is some of the finest food known to mankind. That is raw fish, sushi. See, you're all shaking your heads no, but you need to come to grips with the reality that sushi is some of the finest food on the planet. And that sushi chef will stand back there with a knife that he will, if you're there long enough, after two or three times, he'll resharpen that knife. And it is amazing. He'll take a piece of meat, he'll lay it down, and he'll do things with the knife that are so precise and so 
unbelievably sharp that you can't even fathom that he's not going to lop off some part of his hand or something into your food. And that should not keep you from going because that won't happen. I've seen the sushi chef take a cucumber and with his knife unwrap the cucumber into a thin paper-like cucumber wrap that he puts rice and goodies in it. All dead, raw goodies. Okay? The, the Word of God is so sharp, it's sharper than any knife. And the picture here is of the Roman two-edged sword. So it has a blade on either side. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, so it's more than that. And it is more precise than, than even a knife that could somehow divide joints and marrow, which is uh, it's, it's unimaginable for the soul and spirit. This is the Word of God, and all of that is for this purpose. At the end of verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 4, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason the Word of God is described as the piercing sword is because it comes into our lives and it discerns what we are thinking about and where our hearts are. We talked this morning in Sunday school about evaluating our lives. How do I go about testing my motives in my heart? Well, you have a tool laying in your lap that can go where nothing else can go and that has the power in its living, active power to discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So it corrects and it trains us in righteousness. Hebrews verse, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And then finally in verse 17, the last, last verse here and the last thought for us this evening. So that, and there's a purpose for all of this in Paul's thinking, Remember, he's commanded Timothy to continue on faithfully for the sake of the gospel in spite of persecution, in spite of the evil people, and in spite of the difficult times. So that, he says in verse 17, Scripture is inspired and profitable that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The man of God is competent for the work of ministry and the man of God is equipped for the work of ministry. One of my favorite portions, one of my favorite sections of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing here is so profound. And, and one of the passages that I love most is in 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 2. And he is talking about his ministry. And in verse 15, verse 14 he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That's not a pretty picture. That's a Roman army that had conquered another army. They would make their soldiers be naked. They would chain them from neck to neck. And they would march them through the city as the procession of triumphal procession. That's exactly what he paints here. Blessed, or be thanks, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. Now that's a powerful picture. Paul says, thanks be to God who chains us around the neck and brings us in behind him and says, look at what I've accomplished. And obviously he doesn't tear us down. He grants us eternal life. For we are the aroma of Christ, verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those whom are being saved and among those whom are perishing. To a one, to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now a lot of times when we read verses like that, we just assume the answer. If you read something about being sufficient for ministry, which is what Paul's talking about here, who is sufficient for ministry, the natural answer in your thinking is no one. 
right? I mean, none of us are. We're fallen, sinful people. Paul was, we are, I am, and none of us are sufficient. But that's not what he answers with. Because he keeps writing. And in verse 17 he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In other words, Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? And his answer is, we are. I am. Why? Because I'm not peddling the word of God. I am speaking for Christ. The tool that God has given me, I am stewarding it well for the sake of his ministry, which makes us sufficient because of God's power, because of God's ability, because of God's work and God's word, makes us sufficient for the task of preaching the gospel. The man of God is competent and equipped because he has the word of God. These are the most encouraging verses that I know of as far as ministry and the life particularly of a young pastor. I love these verses because they remind me that where I am incompetent in my life experience, where I am incompetent in wisdom for you, where I am incompetent to come along and empathize with you in your suffering because I have not experienced your suffering. I am competent because I have the Word of God. Where I am ill-equipped to come alongside of you and give human wisdom, where I am ill-equipped for a task of ministering to your needs and your trials and your joys and your sufferings, where I am ill-equipped in my person and I am ill-equipped, I am fully equipped because of the Word of God for every good work. When I see my sin, when I see my shortcomings, when I see my weaknesses put on display, I am reminded that I am equipped not of my own abilities, but because of God's grace through His Word for the sake of His ministry. So the Word of God is the cause or the means by which we gain wisdom for salvation. The Word of God is the very breath of God. It is the voice of God on paper. The Word of God is profitable for our ministry. It is the centerpiece of all that we will do together because it is inspired. It is His Word and we could do nothing but glean and profit from it. And finally, it is sufficient. It is all that we need. It's all that I need. It's all that our ministry needs here. And it's all that you need to be competent and to be equipped for what God has called you to do. I hope that you understand that. You have no excuse. You have God's Word. I have no excuse. I have God's Word. It's complete. It's full. It's perfect. And it is making us competent and equipped for ministry. If we are going to continue in faithfulness to the gospel, it will be because we have fallen back on these safeguards. We have rehearsed our spiritual heritage. We have rehearsed the validity of what we have learned and have firmly believed. And we have rehearsed and we have confessed and we have stood steadfast in a settled bibliology. We know what the Word of God is, we know why the Word of God is, and we know how much it can accomplish in and through us for the sake of continuing faithful in these difficult last days. Nothing will safeguard the minister of the gospel like an eye to his spiritual heritage and a settled bibliology 
These will ground him in the face of adversity of any sort, even the adversity found in verses 2 through 9 that comes from wicked people. And the promise of verses 12 through 13 that those who desire to live a godly life will in fact suffer persecution. I hope that is encouraging. That is certainly not exhaustive as we think about the Word of God, but I hope that that's a blessing to you this week. Now, that, that folks, now, just before we finish, and we need to finish, but before we do, let's not walk out of here and think we've, we've said the right stuff and we've thought the right things. And Word of God's true. It's inspired. We believe all of that. I'm glad we, glad we talked about it. Let's not be hearers of the Word only. And you have listened, and I'm so grateful that you come on Sunday nights and listen. I don't know about you, but I sleep a lot on Sundays to try to get here to have the energy to say anything. And I don't know how you can sit and listen, but you do, and you've heard. But let's not stop there. Let's not stop and say that we've heard and say that we believe and, and, and ascribe to what we've talked about from Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. But let's consider how then these realities will play out in our lives beginning tomorrow morning. What's the Word of God doing in your life tomorrow morning? What place will it have in your thinking? What place will it have in my thinking? Will we continue tomorrow, even tomorrow, will we continue because we have been safeguarded by the reality of an inspired Word preserved for us, even in our own language? Or will we chalk this up to a good doctrine that we believe the Bible's true, we believe in expository preaching, we believe in teaching and studying the Word of God as the perfect and complete revelation of God. But tomorrow morning we're going to get up and rely on our own human wisdom. We're going to rely on our own effort. We're going to rely on what we perceive to be the case in our life tomorrow and walk through our day completely devoid of what we've even studied this evening. If the Word of God is inspired, that means that the church must study it. That means that pastors must teach it, must teach it. And that means that God's people must be consumed and renewed by it. I just don't want us to walk out of here feeling good about our doctrine of the Bible if the doctrine of the Bible has not touched our lives. And so I think it's appropriate for us to finish this evening because of how, how familiar this subject matter is to us to really finish our evening with a moment of of consideration, a moment of confession that we are sinful and that we naturally lean towards our own way and our own wisdom and we desperately need God to give us the grace necessary this week to respond with our lives to the truth of 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, and 17.